Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome to the podcast. As you guys know, I am huge on female entrepreneurship and just really supporting other women in the industry. So I'm really excited. This week we have Rachel on and I would like you to introduce yourself, Rachel. Tell us what you're up to, where you're at, uh, and what you got coming up. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. Um, I am Rachel Preston Prince and I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I have uh, been in architecture, uh, traditional architecture, for 24 years roughly now. Um, however, I have a very non-conventional history um, in the profession, and, uh, and that's been an incredible experience um, because sort of from the get-go, I was trying to... Uh, carve my own path um, in architecture and part of that was predicated because uh, a year and a half after I graduated from uh, with my master's of architecture from A&M, Texas A&M, I found out unceremoniously that I was going to go blind from macular degeneration and at that point they told me I had three years before I would no longer be able to see. And so I knew immediately then that I was going to have to pivot um, somehow. And I just, at first, I honestly didn't believe I'd be able to stay in architecture. Um, but then I realized that it was so much a part of who I am that there was no way I couldn't do it. Like, it was just part of me. And so I had to adapt my uh, practice in order to be able to continue working. Um, and I thought that was going to be temporary, but here we are 20 years later and I'm still working. Um, I'm doing it a very different way than I was at first. At first I started in traditional firms, um, doing historic preservation. And, um, luckily my mom and dad had made me, uh, go to business school first. And so, um, just as part of like they just thought that would be a good base for me to have they were both in business and so i was able to take my business um training and my architecture training and really focus early on in helping firms figure out how to market and manage themselves um and then i was still doing all the normal architecture internship stuff i was determined that i was going to finish my internship um and is in whatever time i had left and I did actually meet that goal, uh, which was incredible. Um, and uh, so I was still running projects and doing normal architecture and drawing bathrooms and doing all the things that maybe architects do. And um, and then over time, I just focused more and more on the marketing side of things and preservation side of things because I recognized that I had sort of a, a, a I enjoyed storytelling. And I could use storytelling in both of those sides of the practice, even if my eyes weren't working and I couldn't draw anymore. So, yeah, so I crafted a career for myself. Luckily, I had incredible bosses for probably 12 of those years um, who really 
they just really liked what I brought to the table and the fact that I had sort of a different point of view. And most architecture types aren't as interested in business. And so I was able to help them navigate some of that and to do some really creative things because I was paying attention to trends um, in storytelling and the, and the, and the tools and techniques of storytelling. At that point, you know, TED Talks were starting to come in and Pecha Kucha and, you know, Facebook was being born and Instagram was being born. And so I was able to really in easily integrate all that. So that's kind of what I became known for, um, was becoming more of a, a storyteller, I guess you'd say. <laughs> Which sounds funny, what do you do? I'm an architectural storyteller. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> It depends on who we're talking about. Yeah, so critically <laughs> important. I can't tell you how many architects would benefit from that because you're right. Um, I do wish sometimes that I had gone to school for business and then gotten a master's in architecture because they don't teach you about business in architecture school. But there are a lot of sole practitioner architects or small firm architects who could really benefit from that, who could benefit from somebody who both understands the business aspect of it, understands how to sell the story of their business, because really that's, that's what we're, you know, we're in the business of selling things that don't exist yet. And so being able to craft that story and tell it and, and really express the things that are important. I know I fall into the trap too often because my background is in building science of going way too technical when I need to be telling the story of like the critical important things once that home is finished is how you feel in the space, how it supports you emotionally here in the Northeast, how it keeps you warm with minimal energy and how it keeps you healthy with proper ventilation and why we don't build like we've been building for 25 years, like why we're doing it differently and how we approach the issues that would come up by doing it differently and really surround people with that's what they want to know and feel about their homes. But we are like, I, you know, we fall back into the, the trap of talking too much about the technical stuff, which I have to understand in order to give you all of those things, but that most people or most of my clients aren't interested in. I do have some people who have followed me either on the podcast or wherever else who are, um, engineers or really into the technical sides and, and we'll talk down into the weeds. Anybody who wants to talk about that, that's fine. But having someone like you that really crafts the mission, tells the story, understands the business and also follows the trends and knows like right now, I don't do a lot with Facebook because Instagram is where I'm seeing so much of it. And it's instead of saying, oh, I have to be on every platform and I have to be in all of these places. It's like, no, I mean, yes, maybe you should have a Facebook page so that people know that you're, you're a real business. Cause sometimes they'll be like, oh, if you don't have a Facebook page, maybe you're not like really in business, but, but the, then you're, That's you're following and the people on the platform that you spend a lot of time on is, is one platform, you know, maybe it's Instagram, maybe it's Pinterest, maybe it's Facebook, depends on what you're selling, the type of architecture that you're doing. You know, for me, it's residential based. I think it also depends on maybe where you are in the country, what, you know, who's, yep. who's doing what, like if you're in a major city, they could be using, I mean, I talk Facebook and Instagram and I could be dating myself like five years ago, right? <laughs> because, because in, in the city where I, you know, I talk to my 
15 year old niece and she's like, I'm using such and such a program. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Right. <laughs> so, so having somebody like you, how does architecture and TikTok go together? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and she says, Auntie, I'm going to come spend a week with you this summer and be your intern. And I was like, come on over. Cause she thinks I only do really cool zoomy 3d designs. And I was like, Oh yeah, you're going to write paperwork and you're like, <laughs> you know, being an architect, so many more things than that. But so many architects. Let me introduce you to code analysis. Oh, right. Here's the code book. Good luck with that. You won't understand half the words. You will have no idea. And sometimes it won't matter because the code officer is going to interpret that completely different. Um, but well, yeah, so, mm -hmm. so it's super cool that you crafted a, a business out of that in cool. And part of the reason why I like to share stories like this on um, on the podcast is, and what took me a long time to realize is that I'm not your traditional architect. And when you start thinking about just trying to fit into the slot of what's traditional, then sometimes you might miss what you're, what you're actually good at, you know, like what, what's oh, your skill set? I love that you just said that. That's so yeah. perfect. Mm -hmm. So I, it's especially interesting to me that you say that right now, because I'm in a moment of transition. Um, that is exactly that. And uh, I have maintained a practice for years and years and years. And several years ago, I started a nonprofit to teach young people about architecture so that they could harness it for their communities. And um, it's gotten to the point now where I, uh, with my eye situation, where I cannot, um, I cannot draw, well, I haven't been able to draw in years. Um, but I, I, I can only see to read for about two and maybe as much as four hours a day, but I don't know which two to four hour period it's going to be. It could be in the morning. It could be in the afternoon and it's really become a problem. And so for a long time, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to give up. I'm going to have to give up. This is just breaking my heart. You know, like this, I feel like I'm called, right? Like I think a lot of us do. Um, like this is, this is what I've always supposed to been able to do. And, um, and I really want to do it for as long as I can. And it was really interesting because I was, at, I was actually house sitting for a friend out in the middle of the desert. And I had some time to myself to think about, you know, and, and I think a lot of us right now with this situation are thinking sort of taking stock of what where we are and what we've created and if it's sustainable because to be honest i think COVID has ex has uh revealed things that we already knew to be true we already knew that the way we were working was unsustainable the vast majority of people that i i talked to um would say that uh, you know they're depleted they don't have they're not finding sources of inspiration they're not finding the right clients like all of these things um, that are 10 times worse now, but they're, they've already been there. And so just sitting there thinking with, you know, sitting with that and feeling that discomfort and being okay with that. Um, and I realized that I had this other sort of path that was, had always been happening that I didn't see. Um, and that I was being called back to that path now. Um, and that it was time for me to start integrating these two, what I thought were disparate parts of who I am. Um, but the nuts and bolts of it is, is that the very, the reason I, I actually, this is a funny story. Some people have heard it um, because I, I've talked about it before, but 
I actually wanted to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> well, that's unique. I went to, yeah, I, I went to military school and I was determined that I was going to go to Annapolis and I was going to become Goose and Top Gun. And, um, and that's how I had set my life up. And then um, I found, lo and behold, we found out relatively early on um, that that was not going to be able to happen because my eyes were mm -hmm. a problem. And we didn't know it was going to be this particular eye thing. We just thought, we just knew that my eyes were bad. And um, so that's actually why I ended up going to business schools. Cause my mom and dad were like, we understand that you're lost and don't know what to do. Maybe you should go to business school until you figure it out. And then on my 19th, around my 19th birthday for that Easter, my mom called me and she worked for American Airlines. And she said, Rachel, I want you to bring home khaki pants and a navy blazer and a white button down shirt and a long skirt and blah 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 and I was like I haven't lived at home since I was 15 I'd been in boarding school like I said military school and I was like okay whatever and so I brought all these things home and my dad came to my car and he got my uh he got my suitcase out of the back and he put it in my mom's car and my mom had this light little glow about her and she was like we're going we're gonna go on a little adventure <laughs> and, and I was like, okay. And turns out she had worked for American Airlines um, and she had scored us tickets to Paris. That's exciting. And she called all my professors, right? And she called all my professors and she said, I need you to give her 10 more days. I'm going to take her on this extended trip. She's lost. I want to help her find herself. We're going to go see the world a little bit and see what we can do. Now, the minute that I landed in Paris, I looked around and I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. <laughs> that deal was sealed, right? However, um, it was actually, um, it was actually the little chapel called Saint-Chapelle in Paris that really sealed the deal. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I haven't. It, when, you, when you walk in, you walk into the downstairs and it's uh, a low groin vaulted. Uh, sort of cave-like place and it's completely covered in uh, gilt gold and uh, cobalt blue paint and there's like literally if I like I in my mind's eye I see little gems all on the walls and stuff like this place was magical and this was just the downstairs cave the part that you walked into but then you go upstairs and then it is truly truly probably one in my mind top five gothic cathedrals in the world that is it's just this tiny beautiful exquisite gem that is all almost all uh stained glass windows and so it's like being inside of a fabergé egg right but like that also has a disco ball in it i mean it's, it was amazing and then after that we had gone to notre dame cathedral and there were these five guys sitting up on the dais and they were singing in different languages. And the song went up into the rafters. And even though they were singing in different languages, it's, it turned into this other thing, like a vibration almost like a, like a, when you, if you've ever listened to like that frequency music that's supposed to help you calm down, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's, it was like that, like, you know, and it, it knocked me on, it knocked me off my feet. And um, 
it was just so incredible. And that, and those two moments in that day really like sealed it. Like, this is, this is what I want to create. I want to help. I want to a learn what creating spaces that literally make someone's heart flutter is. I want to know what that is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I also just, I loved the sort of spiritual essence of it, right? Like it, it, it activated a part of me that wasn't really active. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, I was raised sort of in a traditional family, except for my mom and dad both went to full, school full-time and worked full-time. So depending on which weekend it was and which grandparents I was staying with, I was either Baptist or Methodist. So I had this like really small version of what religion was and I had not really it didn't really fit for me anymore and so to go to this place where it it triggered it like it activated that soul part of me um which was so exciting to me to have that reactivated because I'd sort of given up hope on it Anyway, so ends up I go I go to architecture school, and I go work for this historic preservation firm in Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, we're doing preservation. And then I find I get the bad news. By the way, you have macular degeneration, and you're going to be blind in three years. And I was like, Oh my gosh! Okay, pivot. What do I do? And I said, Well, the you know I always wanted to learn how to do churches, so I'm going to go work for the best church architect in Virginia, and I'll do. I'll spend my last few moments, whatever those moments are, I want to spend them doing this. And um, he, he actually did hire me. <laughs> That's awesome. He actually did. It was amazing. And, um, and it was so cool because he was not just a church architect. He also did synagogues and mosques and all kinds of spiritual places. And one of the philosophies he had in his practice was that, everybody should take whatever their tradition was and go learn everything they could about it and then come back to the firm with that knowledge so that they could design spaces for those kinds of people mm-hmm. methodists sufis unitarians whatever and so i was interested in learning about different religions i was curious um my nature has always been to be very curious but especially since my eyes um i've become even more curious and so I decided to do mine through the Unitarian Church. And because they kind of believe that everybody has, uh, there's truth in all of it. Mm-hmm. And they have this philosophy that you can kind of build your theology around, you know, if, if you're, if you were raised Jewish and now you choose to be Buddhist, that there's, there's a place where those come together and that that's the sweet spot right? That you don't have to ignore one or the other. You can actually have both and create something that includes all of who you are, which I thought was really cool. So I actually did a 200 hour lay ministry training at the church. And it was just such an incredible thing. I learned all these amazing things about architecture all over the world and spiritual architecture um, all over the world. And then I just sort of let it go. You know, like I, I, I worked for him for as long as I could. And then I decided that the last thing I wanted to see was the Rocky mountains. So I was going to move West. And so I moved out West and then I just went back into being preservation girl. Right. Like it's just that I thought it was, I was, I kind of felt like I was living on borrowed time, but also I had to work and there weren't people doing spiritual architecture here. So I went back to preservation and I did that 
in Colorado and then Wyoming and then back to Colorado. And then I ended up moving to New Mexico. And it's real cool because New Mexico is a super spiritual place. Um, there's all different kinds of people who live here and have done things here for hundreds and even thousands of years. And, um, and that sort of got me even more juiced up about the sort of spiritual connections. And, um, but I kept working until this past year. And in December, a few months ago, I actually had to send out letters to all of my clients and peers and professional friends and be like, I can't, like, I can't, I'm, I'm on borrow. Like I really only have a few hours a day. Yeah. And so I can do small projects, but, or long-term projects. And I could definitely consult on things, but you, it's got to be smaller now. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was really kind of freaking out about it, to be honest. Like I'm, I hesitate to even admit that, but it was really, really scary and horrifying. Like, what am I going to do? And so much of how we value ourselves as profession in the profession is like how much we can accomplish. And so I was like, I can't, I can't, (laughs) you know? And, um, but it was really interesting because in the past few weeks, what I finally recognized is that the whole time there have been these two undercurrents of who I am, the spiritual person on one side who actually loves being a minister, even though she's an atheist. <laughs> and this other side who is like, architecture is amazing and it can do so many things for our soul. And it was what goes back to what you were talking about, right? That's what people, at least the people who call me, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for, they're looking for safety and to feel home and to feel nurtured and all of that. And I was like, I actually am going to put them together finally and use the influence that I've built over the years that, you know, ever since my Ted talks and all that kind of stuff to teach people how to harness architecture for the good of their, for for the good of their spirit, you know, and to teach young people, especially young architects about how design really does use all of our senses and we can help people find their way if we tap into that. So it's really interesting because like I'm technically leading architecture but in reality, I'm more architectural than I've ever been before. I was going to say, you're really just taking <laughs> a, a different path to architecture, you know, and getting people interested in, you know, architecture, building, you know, all of that stuff needs to happen at a sooner level. Like it, maybe it needs to be a connection thing that happens in, in middle school. And I recorded a podcast um, a couple weeks ago with another architect who, who said, you know, he didn't know until an architect came to his school that architecture was even an option for him. And he said, and then he came in and he showed me SketchUp and I was sold. And that was what I wanted to do. I felt this connection and he does like permaculture architecture. And so he's really connected to the land and the space and and all of that. But he didn't know it was something that was available to him until, you know, until he had somebody come and see that. And so what you're doing is so critically important because, you know, whether it's architecture or, or a building trade is, you know, there are people getting out of the building trades and it's critically important for us to continue to build our society in a better way. I'm always talking about how, 
um, part of the reason why we don't get good evaluations on high performance houses is because people love living in them. They never sell them. So there's nothing to compare it to in the market. So we have to change the voice of the market oh. because there's no comparison. And so you think about that. And I never some, thought about it like that. Some of the houses or buildings or other things that you will have these experiences with just never become available to anyone else. You wonder if those are the things that are passed down from generation to generation. You have some connection to it, whether it's a camp that your grandparents owned in the 40s that got passed on to your parents and then to you. You know, you have these memories. There's something special about it. And instead we talk about square footage and all this stuff that we have to have because that's the stuff that keeps getting sold every five years because it either doesn't fulfill a need or it doesn't fulfill the the person that lives there that they then want to trade it in. You know, and some of that I think is transient society, like probably in our parents' generation, they sort of, they, they lived in one spot. They maybe married somebody that also went to high school with them. You know, they didn't, whereas like you said, you went West and you went to Wyoming and you went to Colorado and you went to New Mexico. I went from Pennsylvania to Virginia, to Maine, to New York, to back to Maine, you know, like our generation we moved more. We, we took the opportunity to take different jobs. So maybe some of that isn't, isn't quite true. Although we were up to our third house now when I'm, I'm finally like, this is it. This is what we're staying at. We're not moving again. <laughs> but like we lived in, we lived in an apartment when we lived in the DC area. And then we moved to Maine because that's where my husband's family is from. And we thought, we we bought a first time home buyer house and we thought we'd live there for five years and we lived there for 10 because it was a great house. Mm. And the really, realistically speaking, the only real reason we sold it was because we moved to New York. So even though we thought we'd be there for five years, we probably would have been there for 15 or more before we maybe, my husband said when we moved to Maine that I could eventually live on the water. And so that might've been the only reason we would have sold it as I was still holding out for water. I have water now, so I'm good. <laughs> We're not moving. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, we live. That's fantastic. Uh, we live in an you existing, we live in an existing house, uh, on the coast in, in Maine. Uh, and that was part of the whole idea of preservation is I build a lot of zero energy houses. Like if we're going to build new, let's build as well as we possibly can, you know, let's, this is sure. Maine. You don't want to be cold here. You don't want to be worried about frozen pipes and everything else. So if we're going to build, let's build the best that we can. And, you know, we, we move, I've been, I've done energy consulting across the country and I've been out to Los Angeles and I can remember thinking about the smog and choking and then coming back to Maine and just being like a breath of fresh air and saying, Oh yeah, this is another reason why I do this because Part of the reason why people love Maine is because it has that, you know, it has the fresh air, the natural vibes, the ocean, the mountains, all of that stuff. Mm. Like, they're, like we got to keep oh, that right there. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. I love it. Love it. <laughs> you know, and so if we're going to build better, let's, let's build better. But we have mm. a bunch of housing stock that we need to, to keep. And I wanted to live on the water, but I didn't want to, you know, there's not a lot of land left on the water and I didn't really want to build up more on the water. So like, let's, let's pick something that already exists. And then for me as an architect, 
it had to be functional. So it like I waited until I found a space that really worked. And sure, it looks like 1980s in here. I can fix that. <laughs> but the layout yes, you can. and the function of the space was was wonderful, you know, and we knew we'd have to replace Aww. the roof within five years. So the plan is to replace the roof and put solar panels on, you know, just do those mm. <coughs> incremental things as they come up. And so right. I felt like that was important both to preserve the housing stock that we do have, but that as it needs to have maintenance done to it, we can improve that. Um, there's a point at which adding more stuff to it isn't a better offset than, you know, having another solar panel on the roof to heat it or, or whatever. So there's, you know, there's delicate balance in there, but so I love that you're, staying in that preservation mode, you're taking it to other architects and you're taking it to a younger crowd and getting them interested in it because that generation is going to need to make, I mean, honestly, our generation right now needs to make a major impact in the next 10 years, but yes, we do. We don't have a lot of people coming into the field. Some of it is because we've, you know, we've based everybody needs to go to college. So we're not sending people to trades, but then they, then other people will say what well, you know the the craftsmanship isn't there anymore i'm like that's because we're not encouraging people to be craftsmen anymore you know we should be absolutely the building trade they provide health safety and welfare for people and if they're good at it they create really beautiful spaces I and mean, it's it's almost absolutely. art in its essence and they're proud of it and for some reason we've kind of decoupled that I think from building trades and industries I mean I worked with a woman electrician whose wiring was pristine I mean her wiring was art I was like I've never seen anything oh. so aligned so perfect so you know and she just she really it was natural for her yeah she felt passionate about doing this great job and I'm like if everybody that was in was given that level of, you know, respect for it, we would have people who really wanted to jump into it. So I appreciate your, your next journey to bring the word out there, be an architect, you know, whether it's residential or skyscrapers or hospitals or whatever type of architecture you want, um, you know, what telling the story so that they get excited about it which was basically what oh. Trayvon said is he had his architect come in and he was just so excited about it. It, it clicked for him. So. Oh, that's so incredible. And that's so in alignment with exactly where I am. Um, one of the beautiful things that's happened to me since I moved to New Mexico is that we have a very long tradition of earth building and um, thousands of year old <laughs> tradition. And um, I really wanted to learn about that. And because of that, um, because there were so few resources here and it was so far, I mean, people don't realize how hard it was to get here for hundreds of years up until the 1880s. There were, but there were been people here for literally hundreds of years. But there's very few materials. So the materials that we have are all natural and they're all incredibly well crafted, carved and beautifully detailed. And um, it really started to plant this idea in me. And also just, you know, 
assessing the the situation with the way that I I was certainly raised that everyone should go to college. I don't actually believe that anymore. I don't either. Um, I really believe that we should be emphasizing across um, um, between you know education for the sake of education, like we have, and then education for this sake of of like craftsmanship which would to me is the folk schools you know they really deserve the attention that that they have sort that we've sort of tried to transfer over to everybody should get a college education mm-hmm. and um and and a lot of that is because i saw i see so much craft in my daily life here and so when i started my nonprofit originally the very first documentary that we produced was on acoma pueblo which is one of the oldest pueblos here it's still in its original location although it's a relatively new version of the um, pueblo it's only 400 years old (laughs) but um but it's um so we made a, a documentary about their architecture and um and, and through the lens of a brand new cultural center that they have that's built in the last 15 years that taps into their history all the way back to Chaco Canyon and sort of telling the story of how it really, you see this modern building and you're like, oh no, that's not of this place. Well, actually every detail of it is of this place. And so we wanted to tell that story. Well, what ends up happening, I'm sitting there with one of the little Grammys that we interviewed from Acoma, and she's like, you know, I just wish we could get our kids interested in our architecture. And I was like, pretty, what can I do to help with that? And she said, we need to build a curriculum for them so they understand design and our design. And I said, all right. And so we made one. And it was so cool. cool because really they sort of laid the groundwork for what they thought it should tell. And it was based on their six essential building elements um, that are used in the visitor center. But, and it's a much more holistic story because one of the building elements is corn, which they don't actually build anything out of corn, but they use corn as a decoration. Hmm. But corn is so fundamental to their culture and their ritual practice and their daily lives and their survival that it becomes sort of this like sacred element that becomes part of the architecture and it really started to make me think like even the way that we're teaching this traditionally the way that people have reached out to kids about architecture has been oh let's you know take some sugar cubes and stick them together and learn about massing and all those kinds of things and those are really interesting but for these kids who live on the res like they look at the world through a totally different lens and so we were building an architecture curriculum that looks through that lens and it was so fascinating to me because it was really really different and it was really fundamentally about what you do with your hands and how it how it connects to their thousand year old traditions. That's and, so cool because they they do say that working with your hands has some direct correlation to a lot of STEM programs like architecture and building yes. and science and technology has to do with working with your hands and at that age level and how um, in traditional school boys are are 
maybe encouraged outside of the classroom to do more with their hands than than women are mm -hmm. um, in different aspects. And part of the reason why maybe we have lower volumes of women in STEM professions. And so I love that you're using that with something that's that's really native to them, but also using the the local materials and the history of that area and um, what we do with you know building science and the preservation of our our earth you know has to be so much more local local materials local things that are are particular to those area and then you know connection to it and not you know not just that it's easy to to get a hold of but like corn is this huge thing in their environment and they use it to decorate with like how cool is that like oh i want to see your documentary <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll share the link so you can share them with everybody for the oh, podcast. I would love to. It's yes. really cool. It's really cool. And what was even more amazing is that after they implemented at their Pueblo, they gave us permission to share it with middle schoolers around the state. And so now it's a free curriculum for anyone in the state, any young person or even old person in the state who wants to learn about architecture and design through that lens can now learn about it. That and is it so is so cool. It has been so powerful, and 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 we and the even cooler part is we're getting ready to shoot. We've already actually mostly shot another documentary at Vandalier National Historical Park with some of the um, Puebloan, the young people from San um, San Ildefonso Pueblo who are doing the restoration work on the old buildings for the park service so that they can learn those techniques and take them back to their pueblos and help their pueblos rebuild and it's so interesting because it becomes so much about place here and i think a lot of us are not trained to really harness place and like the shape of the buildings and the orientation to the sun and shade and all of these kinds of things and so it's we're being able to have really powerful conversations with young people. And the even more amazing thing is that we have, we have partners in schools um, throughout the Santa Fe area where the, there are other young people who are coming to learn filmmaking while we're doing it. And so we're, we're showing young people all different kinds of aspects about architecture that most people don't realize, you know, it, it's really powerful. It's been so it's been such a gift to me that like this crazy idea I had has been so well received and that yeah, people want to help and play and learn. And it's, I want you to do it all over the so country. Cool. I want you to do it all over the country. Wouldn't that be the Every, most like, awesome? Everywhere. You know, I t often talk about, you know, we have different climate zones. We, we, uh, attack how you build so differently in different parts of the country and you know whether it's resources that are available or the history that's in the place and i love i always talk about place-based planning um i sat on the planning board for mm -hmm. a long time and part of the oh, things that you. people yeah part of the things that people don't understand about why they like a, a city or a space or a sidewalk that they walk down is because of the relationship that you personally have with these buildings and the scale that they're at and um you know trayvon mentioned on the podcast that we've gotten so attached to technology that we've almost forgotten the things that used to be you know innate to us in the design world if you look at you know most architects at some point in their career or school study roman architecture mm -hmm. and 
how back then they knew to place their buildings south to take advantage of the sun, you know, and then we got all this technology stuff and we're like, forget it, we don't have to do that. But like, if you look at this house that's, uh, you know, behind me on the, uh, on the screen behind me as you're, as you're watching, like all of the houses in this neighborhood face south. They don't face each other. They don't face the street. They are all oriented to the south to take advantage, not only of the solar for the solar on the roof, but to take advantage of how that light moves through the space. And someone said to me once, they're like, well, I want to add a covered porch on my house. Like, where would I do that? And like, in Maine, you want to do that on the West because that's going to be the hottest side and it's going to be the part you want to shade. I'm like, you don't really want to shade a lot of the other parts of the house and take advantage of prevailing winds and where the sun is. And I'm like, are you, I ask people when I start designing a house, like, are you a morning person or not? Because that depends on whether we put your yeah. mask our bedroom on the east side of the house you know it's not just like oh this is where the bedroom fits it's really like how do you live in this space where do you want to be you know how do you move through the space are you a one cook or two cook kitchen like maybe you have a small Ooh. kitchen because you just you know you cook by yourself or you don't cook at all um do do you entertain or are you outside and all of our houses like bleed into the nature and the landscape and you feel like you're outside when you're inside and we place windows in locations so that your eye is drawn through the house and looks outdoors and it makes the space feel bigger than it is because you don't really need more space but you want to feel spacious you know you want to have everything has a Bye. place and and so we we design based on those non-tangible things like when people come in and they're like i want x number of square footage and this and that i'm like whoa 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 let's back up like what do you really need what what needs to happen here like let's talk about how you want to use your space and i think covid has also taught us that we Ooh. miss connection you know not being able yes. to be with other people and so maybe people want to spend less in their house so that they can go out and do all of the other things or in maine um we have snowbirds we have people who want to go south for december oh, sure. to march and you don't want to worry about your house freezing or having frozen pipes or something while you're gone like there's so many i think we get so like you said this earlier and and it really resonated with me which is that we get so busy and so caught up in you know, working all the time and our associations with that, that we sort of forget that there are other parts of our lives, you know, that we, in order to be fulfilled and really enjoy things, we have to have time. So, right. And time and space, time and space. Yeah. You have to be able to, you know, like working this many hours was not sustainable working some of these jobs we discovered were not essential and some of the things that were essential were the things that we're not telling people to do we're saying go to college don't go do this but this thing during a pandemic was super important was really critical and wow. that, that's kind that's of eye-opening it's a very good point so, so yeah, so I want you to go all over the country. I want you to document every 
you, I mean, you'd be at it for like 300 years, Ever. like, you know. <laughs> you would, oh, darn, twist know. my arm. I you know, know, right? Oh, I mean, but that's, I mean, how, that's actually my dream. Yeah, that's how you get people excited. And like, we've been talking for the longest time, like, how do we get education out? Like, how do we do this? But maybe it's not even so much that we need to educate the people who are already in the industry is that we've got to give people access who aren't in the industry yet because they could be so excited about it that they continue to push it forward. And that's, that's what's missing in architecture. There's so much unknown. People think that construction is just hard and difficult, but there are so many things that you can do in the world of construction. It's not just like the guy swinging a hammer, you know? And no, there's so much, there's so many layers of all that we do that there's space for everyone. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. I mean, really and truly. Yeah. It's, and I, I, yeah. Taking the time to figure out what we're good at and what we like to do. Like that was the hard part. Um, I am not sorry that I became an architect. I'm not sorry I went to college and studied that. It has been really rewarding for me and I have loved it. I loved the school I went to. I loved the firms I've worked for and I love what I'm doing now. Um, but at 18, do you really know enough about yourself to just decide that that's what you're gonna do for the rest of your life? I mean, and had I known what I know now, which I mean, obviously you can't learn any of those things until you grow up and you learn and you try different things, but I would have done a minor in business at the same time. I would have maybe known I always wanted to be, uh, you know, in business. And it was sort of the joke for a long time, which is that you went to architecture school and then you did your internship and then you got your license. And then after you get your license, I think every architect has probably uttered the words, now I can do something else. Right. <laughs> 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 it's like it's a true. long time to get there. You feel super accomplished uh, once you get there. And then you're like, okay, now I can do something else. Like, oh, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not every architect has done that, but it's kind of the, the joke. I suspect we've all had it run, run through our heads once right? or twice. I think so. <laughs> or what was I thinking? Yeah. And was then, I trying to punish myself? Right. <laughs> You know, but then, because this isn't what I thought it was supposed to be. That's another thing that happens is we get there and you're like, oh, this isn't what I was supposed to, what I thought it was. Oh, it, it, architecture school and the profession of architecture are so widely different that it's, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> like, it almost makes you want to, like you mentioned Annapolis and the Naval Academy. I had a friend that went to the Naval Academy and I know that when they were in the Academy, they had to do tours every summer based on the different types of the Navy that you could be part of, you know, whether it's flight school, mm -hmm. whether it was submarines, whether it was tankers, I, I'm sure I don't know, like even a quarter of what they are able to do, but they had to do like a six week okay. internship or something over the summer while they were in the Naval Academy in different branches that they thought they might want to get into. And I thought, that's awesome. That is what they should encourage architecture students to do. Like go, work for a big firm that does something oh go gosh, work yeah. for mm -hmm. a small firm because some people are big firm architect kind of people and some people are small firm architects and some people think that residential is an easier version of commercial and i'm like residential is a totally different animal i mean residential the joke is you're you're a marriage counselor like when you build That's a house so true you build a house, that person is so intimately involved in every detail 
of that house. When you do bigger commercial projects, you have a donor, you have certain amount of funding, you might have one or two public spaces that are really cool. And then you have a lot of functional spaces that just have to function, you know, whether it's a, um, I worked for a while in an art school and it's like the classrooms had to be a certain Ooh, size fun. and hold a certain number of students. Like classrooms were not fun, cool spaces. And then they had to have egress doors and you know, all that stuff. And they had to have a certain number of bathrooms because you had a certain number of people. Like some of that stuff is, is the not fun stuff, but there's a certain amount of money and there's a certain involvement and those people are maybe more everyone's always concerned about the money but they're more concerned about the money than every detail of like where this trash can is going to be placed and where you know which direction the head of my bed faces and what can i see when i look out this window and, so, and where's the light switch when I'm reaching for it in the dark? Exactly. You know? So <laughs> residential, nuances. Right. residential architecture is so personal. And so a lot mm -hmm. of times I will tell people that commercial architects aren't really good at residential. In the flip side, residential architects are probably not that good at commercial, <laughs> you know, and somebody who designs hospitals. I think that's true most of the time. Yeah, somebody who designs hospitals might not be able to design a skyscraper. Like there are so many different types of architecture. So when you're in architecture school, go out and work for different firms that do different types of architecture. You know, governmental architecture is usually very spec-based. You know, if you're super interested in like technical details on all that stuff, that might be a great, a great place for you to go. And so it's, it's interesting to me that architecture school doesn't, I mean, they tell you to go get an internship, you know, they recommend that, right. but they don't necessarily like, and, and when people ask me, you know, like, oh, what did you do? I actually say like, go and work for a contractor. I actually think that yes. that's the one that like, go swing a hammer for a summer and learn to use a chop saw and just be on a site and learn how things go together. Um, when I was getting really into building science, I did a lot of energy consulting, which meant I went in hundreds of houses and I got to see how hundreds of houses were put together. And that was a oh, wow. valuable experience. You know, I, I sort of laugh because powerful. I teach a class and I'm like, oh, how many people have been in their attic? And you know, you know, like a, one or two people raise their hand. Um, I, I kind of laugh because I've been in so many attics now, you know, so many basements, so many attics, seeing all these things. I was like, go home, go in your attic, come back, let's talk about it. You know, it's just right. It, it's just so I don't know for me getting to do that, and I followed somebody around for three months before I was able to do any consulting on my own. And I learned so much. And it's that hands-on experience where, like you said, you had people coming to work as part of a film crew, but that film crew mm -hmm. was going through all of, you know, they were hearing the stories, they were going through the architecture, they were doing it. Some of those kids may develop an interest in architecture or continuing working with you and doing other cultures because learning about different cultures is super interesting i i don't oh, know yeah. i don't know if that's an architecture thing you know like when i picked the architecture school that i wanted to go to i wanted to make sure that it had a study abroad program that was part of uh -huh. the curriculum i i right. knew 
that I wanted to do that. And, you know, since, since I studied abroad, um, I went to Rome for a semester. Um, but since I've studied abroad, um, thankfully my husband also loves to travel and we've just traveled all over and, you know, people will say, Oh, you know, where do you want to go next? I was like, literally everything is on the bucket list unless it's, (laughs) unless it's like, really not appropriate for us to go there right now, you know, cause there's different conditions in different parts of the world where maybe like now's not the time to visit there, but otherwise, you know, right. aside from safety situations and stuff like that, there is nowhere that I don't want to see because you, you just get, you learn so much from other cultures and how other people live. And that to me is so fascinating. So, so yeah, if you made a documentary of like every part of the world, I would totally watch it. (laughs) Oh, good. I mean, you know, I'm going to be honest, like that would be my dream. Like my dream would be that PBS, like I actually, even when I set, when I started doing the documentaries, so the documentaries are part of what I hoped was going to be like a 13 part series that was going to go from the very beginning of architecture in New Mexico all the way up to the modern age, including all the hippie communes and all that kind of weird stuff that's here, you know, the earth ships and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, and, and I always wanted it. I was like, I want to get it on New Mexico PBS because then when I get it done and I have some, and I have like real experience under my belt, then I can try to do one for PBS and then I could do one for BBC. And then I could do, <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to go to everybody and, and we're going to tell the whole story of architecture around the world um, and how it's all connected, which is so beautiful. And I, I want to go back to something that you just touched on um, when you said uh, going and working um you know, the internship aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I want to introduce another, um, not just architecture and contracting, which I think are great and not just different kinds of architecture, but also one of the places that I think that we have sort of lost our way. I think that a lot of our clients would say that we've kind of lost our way and it goes back to your technology um, comment about how we depend so much on technology. And that is that, um, we have kind of disconnected from the natural building realm. And I think that there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of good in that. Um, you know, and part of it's come from spending so much time here in New Mexico, but also I got involved by, um, uh, by doing some research on earth buildings and, and specifically the earth ships, interestingly. Um, I got involved with the natural building colloquium and um, and I met a lot of the people who are writing the codes. They're architects who are writing the codes for Strawbale and Cobb and all of these really exciting building techniques and that um, that are kind of fringe. They're considered fringe architecture now, and I would like to make that mainstream. I think that there are places where that, that could really benefit from that. Me and so, uh, too. And actually, it's funny that you said that because anybody who's listening on here who's also been watching the BS and Beer show knows that we did a plant-based building material show uh, maybe two or three weeks ago. And um, we had uh, some of those people who are working on the codes and doing it themselves and and doing all that. And we had um, had a straw bell guy from Vermont who, you know, for the longest time we were like straw bells, you know, you can't do that in (laughs) the Northeast because there's too much moisture, whatever. And um, I don't remember if it was him or one of the other guys on the show said, you know, 
if you do any water management in any building, then you can do straw mails. Like it's literally just knowing how to do water management. And as architects, we should know how to do that stuff. Right. I mean, we that's should. just, that should be mm -hmm. part of our training. Um, but I said at the end of it, I was like, I think we need a BS and beer summer camp. All these people who are <gasps> watching BS and beer, just like, let's know. get together and let's, let's build a straw bale house. Like, you know, let's, let's build, let's build a plant-based building material. Let's get us over it. Let's learn, you know, the stuff here because we're kind of right now the forefront of the people who can push some of that technology. And, you know, they mentioned the things of how like we spend all this money to come up with these chemical based products. Like why didn't we just spend the money to figure out how to, better utilize plant-based products and how you know there's there's enough straw grown all over the united states to handle all of this but then there are the questions of like can we build buildings that are five stories tall with straw bales and someone's like yep there's one here and so there's there's so many ways and and mass timber and how to utilize oh, some yeah, of those things absolutely. and i would love to i and we was sort of it was sort of a joke, but not a joke that I was like building science and beer summer camp and you can make it like, it might be hard for people from New Mexico to make it to Vermont or whatever, but maybe every year it's kind of in a different part. And so like, maybe you can't come this year, but next year it's in your, you know, in your neck of the woods. And, you know, I could decide to come to New Mexico to do it, or I could decide to go to one that's close to where I'm at. And both get, you know, building training, building science training, plant-based training, like just learn some of these things from people who are considered the fringe people now, but need to build it and bring it mainstream. And I thought that would be the coolest idea. I, and I'm, I'm still a hundred percent on board with it. And there are probably schools and tech centers. Um, I went to Penn state and Penn state had a straw bill course. So they took the whole course and they learned about how to do it, what to do. And then they went to, I don't know if they went to New Mexico. I don't remember exactly where, but they went out West and they built a straw bale building on a reservation for a group. And there were different buildings that they built, you know, every year that they do this program. Um, and I thought that's super cool. And I didn't know about it until my senior year. And of course I missed out on taking the class, but I definitely would have. Um, but it could be something similar, you know, similar to that. I know yesterday up here is a building science school and I think mm -hmm. they have camp facilities Good and one. they could, they, you know, they could have people that would come here that would learn how to build zero carbon buildings based on what we do traditionally in the Northeast, you know, wood and cellulose and wood fiber products and, you know, right. foam free construction. And that could be another, I mean, so many things in different parts. And I think because I've always been super interested in education, I would just want to go to like everyone and learn all the different parts and pieces and, you know, <laughs> there's the history of it. And right. Like I've decided that I'm just always going to be a student. I'm always learning. And the cultural Amen, history sister. is just so exciting. It's just interesting. So, um, it truly is. I could totally see you it doing a PBS like whole series <laughs> that just is like different places. Every like every episode is just in a new place, a new documentary, a new you know. And that I just could think be, it would be so incredible. 
how we preserve architecture. That was actually something that popped up. So um, Green Building Advisor and Fine Home Building are sponsors of the BS and Beer Show. And the two guys that are editors there are, they're so much fun. And they were having the little debate the other day on green building versus preservation, right? Because we've got some of Ooh. these, because we've got some of these older buildings and sometimes historic preservation does not go hand in hand with green building, you know? That's right. So they were having, that's right. They were having this whole conversation about it, which I thought was, was really cool and, and really interesting. And um, it made me really think about how, how do we preserve things when, you know, in, in film or in video or in heritage, when maybe that building no longer supports the, the function of what it has, you know, because we've, we've tried in, in some cases to, to retrofit buildings and that doesn't always work or, you know, the, the expense of replicating something doesn't always pay for itself to do. And so how do we preserve things with, without maybe having to physically preserve everything, you know, are there, are there places where, where a replica or, or a piece of something gets preserved so that it's, it's part of a, you know, history, but maybe it only lives in one place, you know, maybe that's the thing that you mm -hmm. go and visit sort of like a, old car museum where like they don't drive the model t fords anymore like very rarely do they mm -hmm. drive down the road but there are several of them that are preserved in places or people's collections where you could still see it and That's reference true. the history of that which is it's neat and it's interesting you know and they they probably have made documentaries of the the first manufacturing line but that doesn't exist anymore you know that's so, true. So preserving the history and the documentation of architectural pieces without maybe them physically being there could be a, a really interesting, you know, could be a really interesting way to both interest people in architecture and new architecture, but also interest people in the history of how architecture came about and what they did. So right it's evolution yeah and and there's some stuff that we need to we, we need to let die yeah there's some <laughs> you, stuff we need to let know. go of and that's you know that's the reality and that's one of the really it's a reality and it's also one of the very interesting conversations in preservation right now you know especially right now at this moment yes when we're looking at monuments and when we're looking at um and of uh, places and it's like do we really need to maintain this story Right. Um, and especially because as we're finding out, you know, um, you talked earlier about how you moved around a lot when you, in your career. And I also had the same thing, although it was always my intent to stay somewhere. I never really wanted to stay anywhere until I got to Santa Fe. Um, but you know, preservation was a movement of locals before it became a profession. Mm -hmm. And so we have this sort of, um, switch happening in preservation where there's literally not enough money to preserve it all. Mm -hmm. And the people who lived there that were sort of running all the preservation and, and, and letting and leading those efforts are now gone. 
and it's like and they're and they're or they've moved to another neighborhood and they're still trying to preserve that neighborhood and they're trying to do it from afar and they're not listening to the people who are now members of the neighborhood who are like we need our neighborhood to work for us now not for where you lived here 50 years ago you know and so there's really interesting it's a really interesting moment where I think a lot of what we are doing is being redefined and it needs to be um, certainly, but it's also kind of uh, a little bit painful. And um, I don't know about you, but whenever my paradigm shifts unwillingly, I get, I'm in a little bit of pain about it. <laughs> but, um, and the other thing that I think about when you go back to the, the things that you can learn from the natural building groups is that, by its nature, when you build something together, especially something that requires drying time and, and, and like, it requires collaboration and it requires everybody being at the table willing to listen and wait until whatever is dry, right? And so they end up, it, it, it's like a completely different way. We've always been taught, oh, design, design, design. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It doesn't matter if you're a good team player. It doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the firms try to be like, no, 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 no. We need y'all all to work together. <laughs> but that's not a skill that you can learn currently the way that the profession is, right? It's, it's sort of harder to get at. And that's another thing that I think would be really great is if we built sort of more of a collaborative um, sort of um, process in our um, in, in the way that we work so that we can integrate more of these ideas and not be so like well it's this way or not well I don't know maybe the way that I was taught doesn't work anymore that is so true and we talk about that all the time and we talk about integrated design and we talk about the builders and the architects and the consultants and the owners and everybody being part of a really good team um, I talk about that with all of my clients they're like so we're going to put together this design package and put it out to bid and i said i don't do bid work I, you have to pick the contractor during the design phase because then they know what's critically important to you they know um, the ideas behind why we designed this they bring their own skill set to the table and they're going to know things about how their crew works or how they've done things that i've either not done before or didn't know would be easier for them i said you will get a better project when everybody is invested when you know the all the subcontractors know what the overarching goals are on the site um, and that you start with, you know, the landscape architect is, you know, people think, oh, they just plant pretty things at the end. And I'm like, no, my landscape architect uh. does a grading plan within half an inch. Like we know where the water's going to go, how the house is going to sit. We're not bringing in extra fill to just like make this house work here. Like we are really working with the natural environment to do that. And she's, you know, putting up grade stakes and saying like, you can't drive on this part because things that get missed are, you know, the ground gets compacted if everybody just drives all over the site and then nothing drains and you know you have these issues and so for me oh, that's so true that's such a critical part it's so important for that to be part of it from the beginning and to have this integrated team and for a while um christine and i talked about this on the podcast early on um which is that you know everybody's sort of afraid to be wrong so they're just like it's this way or or whatever and it's like no like that's that's this should be a, a an experience where we all can ask questions and we all get better together and i love that aspect of it and um somebody said recently on one of the podcasts that um it's really a people skills business 
Like you, you have to, Mm -hmm. yeah, you have to be good at working with people. And that's, if you have that skill, you should get into some kind of architectural trade because that's critically important. Absolutely. I've, I often have said that 70% of my job is psychology. Yep. It really is. And that's what makes successful project. So I think we could talk all day. I have to pop off for another meeting at two 30. Like I just want to be your best friend and move to New Mexico. Um, but so I <laughs> know you perfected over there and we'll just come back and forth. Okay, yeah, yeah, That sounds great. That sounds perfect. Okay. Um, and so uh, I appreciate you coming on today and sharing your experience because everybody's experience is different. And the more we share, the more we'll get people interested in, and why they might want to be part of this, you know, community and development of future uh, as architecture. So I always end the podcast to see if there are any great books or resources or something that you say, everybody should, should read it or watch it or whatever. I absolutely will share your documentary. So if you send me the link, I'll make sure that gets put up as part of that. So, so anybody listening here who also thought that was the coolest idea ever uh, can watch that. but any other resources or things where you think that someone should absolutely read? I, I mean, you know, I, I hate to be cheesy and old, but I really still believe that um, uh, a pattern language by Christopher Alexander is like one of the great gifts to our profession. And so that's like when I, so as I've been going blind, I've been paring down my, uh, um, my bookshelves because I just can't look at all sure, sure, anymore sure, sure. And, and carrying them from point A to point B is getting old. So that's one that has never um, gone away and 101 things I learned in architecture school. <laughs> and I think that one is, I, I mean, to me, I think if you have a, a young person in your life or even an older person who's interested in architecture, that's one th- book that like will help them to suss that out. That's a great resource. And I don't care how old they are. Sometimes the best books are the oldest books because <laughs> in between all of the, the cool things we're doing now and the cool things we did before, there's a whole series of technology books, which are, which are cool. But you know, the, the thing about it is some of that stuff goes out of style and some of that stuff is just always important. Like it's just always, it just remains an important consideration. So thank you for coming on today and taking time out of your busy schedule. Absolutely. And we will do this again soon. Oh, it's fantastic to be here. Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.